This is the Leadership Lessons Podcast, hosted by Pastor Daniel Williams, a podcast to encourage and equip church leaders. Brought to you by eeleaders.com. Well, we're back, and this is going to be a great episode. It's episode number 21, and I'm so grateful that you're listening to the Leadership Lessons Podcast, brought to you by EE Leaders. Uh, I can't believe that the season is coming down to the last few episodes. I tried to have a season of 24 episodes, and here we are with uh, just four more solid episodes, but don't you worry. Great content is still uh, going to be in these last few episodes, and honestly, I am so excited about season two already. Uh, the film I've been taking, the interviews, the guest lessons, it is going to be fire. Uh, I really have a lot more um, local friends here in South Florida, but also some national guys that you may know as well. And so uh, really looking forward to that and really looking forward to finishing out this season strong. The last few episodes we've been talking about mentorship and it's important in our lives. And not just to be a mentor, we sort of started with that concept to pass your faith on to others, but the importance of still learning, still growing. As 2 Timothy 2.2 says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others. And we jump so quickly as leaders wanting to do, do, do and, and to pour into other people, but we need to make sure that we're still being poured into. Timothy still had Paul in his life to mentor him, to disciple him. And so this process of learning, of passing it on to other people is so important for us as leaders that we're uh, making disciples, but we're also being a disciple, following Jesus, having people pour into us. And so I wanted to introduce a guy that's been speaking into my life, pouring into me over the last year, uh, doing great uh, work in my heart and just Man, having a Bible study every Friday where we just sit down and study God's Word together with just a handful of guys, it's been so good and so great. It's Dr. Warren Gage. He's a pastor down in Fort Lauderdale, and he teaches this weekly Bible study to pastors to help them see Jesus in all of Scripture. That's one of his main goals is just to pour into other preachers so that they would see Jesus, they would see the gospel in all of Scripture and it's been so fruitful, so helpful, so beneficial. It's like he speaks my language. I don't have to explain all this stuff to him. He just gets it, and it's it's amazing. Uh, it's incredible. And so I asked him to share with us today and do a guest lesson. And I know that you're going to be blessed by it. I know you're going to enjoy it. You can find out more about him and the ministry at uh, www.alexandriaforum.org. Uh, and I'll have that link in the show notes as well. And so I hope that you are blessed by uh, my friend and mentor, Dr. Warren Gage. Uh, enjoy. Hi, my name is uh, Warren Gage, and uh, it's my task to try to represent and defend uh, the idea of preaching Christ in all of the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, but also in the uh, New Testament. And so that's my... It's been my life task and it's been my joy. Twelve years I was a professor at a seminary, uh, professor of Old Testament, and that was my uh, task to find how do, we, how do we understand Christ in all the scriptures. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inspired and so that theme uh, would be imparted to the text of scriptures by the Holy Spirit through the different various writers that uh, composed the the canons of the Old and the New Testament, so we believe we can do that. 
Uh, Jesus said we could do that in uh, John 5.39. He said all the scriptures speak about him. He said the same thing to the Emmaus disciples, that uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So what I'm trying to advocate is how do we preach Christ in all the scriptures? Uh, everybody talks about preaching Christ and wanting Christ to be the focus, but I think we can be more specific than that when Jesus tells the Emmaus disciples that the whole theme of the Old Testament was the suffering of Christ, namely the cross and burial, and then the glory that would follow, which is the resurrection and the ascension, that together constitutes the gospel. We understand the cross is necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, we have to have Christ dying and atoning death for us, but if he's, if he's not resurrected, then our faith is in vain. We have to have the resurrection that validates the work of Christ on the cross. That is the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice on our behalf in a substitutionary sense. And so then we have a full gospel. Uh, the core of the gospel is substitution. That's, I would urge everybody that that's, that's in a preaching and teaching role, that that's the, most, uh, the point that needs to be Clar clarified the most. The, the idea is someone has to understand that Christ died in their place uh, and in their stead for their sins and that he took our sins upon himself and he is our hope of justification before God. That's critical to understanding the gospel. So the gospel message is the cross, but it's also uh, the resurrection. In fact, that's what the apostles emphasized more than even the cross was the resurrection, which presupposes the cross, but the focus was upon the resurrection. So if that's the case, then uh, we can be more specific than just saying we want to find Christ in all the scripture. What we want to find actually is the gospel in all of the scripture. We want to find his work uh, and his uh, authentication, his justif justifying work in scripture. And that's the pattern that Jesus displayed to the Emmaus disciples. The suffering of Christ followed by the glory of Christ beginning with Moses and all the scriptures. So John 5.39 and, and uh, Luke 24.26.27 teaches us that we can read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in such a way as to see the gospel uh, virtually in all of the stories. I think it's the common denominator to every major narrative in the text. Now a word of caution um, I find that Protestants, and I, I am a loyal son of the Reformation, but Protestants have the most challenged, uh, are more, more challenged than most in finding Christ in the Old Testament. And that's, I think, because of self-imposed restrictions. If Jesus hadn't himself said that Jonah's uh, sojourn in the belly of the fish for three days represented and was answered by Christ being in the grave of the earth for three days before the resurrection, uh, I don't think many of us would have seen that correspondence. And so, but everybody, nobody disputes it, but I don't know that we would have necessarily seen it if Christ hadn't given us that massive clue to the way that he himself read the Old Testament. And that means we need to expand our imagination to try to discover, um, well, what are emblems of death? Uh, Jonah never died. Uh, he was emblematically dead uh, and writes his psalm from Sheol, but he never clinically died. Uh, and, uh, but nonetheless, he becomes a picture of death, burial, and resurrection when he's cast up on the shore. 
And so uh, that means we have to expand our understanding of exactly what, what the gospel looks like. One of the clues that I took is that uh, Jesus said that uh, every time he taught about everything that would happen to him, he said he had to be raised on the third day. And Paul makes that a special point. He was crucified and buried according to the scriptures and raised the third day according to the scriptures. So I took that as uh, the X on the treasure mar uh, map and went back in the Old Testament and found 40 major texts that mentioned three days or the third day or you could reconstruct that it was three days. And typically you find someone is delivered from death or some, something like imprisonment or a den of lions. And on the third day, and often on the morning of the third day, God intervenes to deliver them. So, uh, but in examining those texts, and I actually wrote that up in a book called Milestones to Emmaus, but examining those texts, I was trying to reconstruct the hermeneutic of Jesus. How did he see these things? Um, and that helps us then to give us a clue to how to focus in on what is the gospel in the Old Testament. And, and in the new as well. So uh, I want to give three illustrations. I want to take, uh, I think you have to do, you have to see this by seeing it. Like Dorothy Sayers said, the eye by seeing learns to see. I think the more of these illustrations that you see, then you eventually, you learn that, my goodness, the gospel is everywhere. And so, uh, and most familiarly in passages that we think we know well, but maybe you haven't looked at them through a gospel lens yet. So I want to take three passages to uh, just to illustrate this. Uh, there are many, many more on our website. Um, I just finished a series of sermons on Genesis 1 to 3 uh, where I was trying this particular approach and I was finding the gospel in virtually every paragraph of those three critical chapters in the scriptures. And I can tell you that the people of God really responded amazingly well and so um, you know in terms of Christians were encouraged and people were called to faith and so it was a really delightful time and I would encourage anybody if they want to supercharge their preaching and get response from the people who are already Christians or people who are seekers that the more you can be gospel focused uh, the very better it's going to be all the way around It'll encourage your own heart. Remember, the Emmaus disciple said that when Jesus was expositing the Old Testament, according to that pattern of the gospel, that the Christ had to suffer and then enter into his glory, their hearts burned within them. And I find that experience happens all the time. And I hear all the time, how did you see this? We've read that story a hundred times, but we've never seen it. And it's just because we haven't given ourselves permission uh, to, uh, in some ways, to be obedient to what Christ says. Christ says it's there. So uh, the dominical word of Christ himself, it's in, the, it's in the text. So it's our job then as preachers and teachers to, to find it and lay it out clearly for the people of God. So I want to take three illustrations. I'm going to take uh, one short one. I'm going to look at uh, the sleep of Adam for his bride in Genesis 2. Then I want to look at one more elaborate pattern just to show the scope of detail and how perfectly the scriptures coincide, and that's Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, very different from the way that it's typically preached uh, in Protestant pulpits as a hero story about Daniel's faith. That story's not about Daniel at all, but anyway, uh, we'll see how that works. And then I want to take one illustration from the New Testament, and that's Zacchaeus in the tree. 
Uh, there's a lot more to that story than just a wee little man. So we'll take a look at that incredibly beautiful, iconic uh, picture of uh, Zacchaeus and his coming to faith. So let's begin with uh, the uh, story from Genesis 2 about the creation of the woman. And I'm just going to hit the highlights of this one, and that is God created the man. Uh, he intended him to have a wife, and the wife would enable him to be fruitful and multiply, uh, which God had commanded him to do. So uh, we would think that God would make a bride for Adam, just like he made Adam of the dust of the ground or the clay of the earth or something like that. But he doesn't do that. He does a very, very strange thing. First of all, he makes the man who is male, and that's a sexual term, alone. Well, why would God do that? Um, it's very clear in the context that God is preparing the heart of the man for the gift of the bride. And so he's showing him his loneliness, and he's showing him his inability to accomplish what God has commanded him to do. And once he sees that uh, with the heart to treasure his bride as a gift of God, then God will provide the bride. So it's not good that the man should be alone. God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. So how does God do that? Well, Adam is uh, filled with life. We remember he is still innocent. Uh, this account is in Genesis 2, not 3, and so it's before the fall. And he's, he's innocent, he's filled with life, uh, mind totally unclear. And uh, God brings upon him a profoundly deep sleep. The Hebrew word is unusual, tardimah, it's more like a coma. It's not used of ordinary sleep. It's a sleep uh, uh, like, a, like a coma, he's completely insensible. And then God does something, you know, you, you wonder, what is, he, what is God doing? Here is this man filled with life, and now he's prone on the ground. It looks like a corpse. What is God doing? And then God does something even more bizarre. He pierces his side and creates a bloody wound. Why would God tear this perfect specimen of a man open and extract the uh, substance with which he will create the bride? But he does that, and he makes the bride, he heals Adam of his wound, and then awakens Adam in the garden to receive his bride in all of her beauty and purity. That's the way that God has chosen to create the kind of love between the man and the woman that he intends. And why does God do it that way? Well, if we think a little bit about the context of the Bible, uh, God's Son is destined to become a man. And when Christ is born, uh, a man, he is born under the law, it's not good for him to be alone either. He must have a bride. So John the Baptist in the spirit of prophecy says, I've heard the voice of the bridegroom. He's come in quest of his bride. So we wonder, well, we know that the bride is the community of the faithful of all the ages, but how is that brought about? And John is the one who explains the connection because uh, Jesus, like Adam, is innocent. He has committed no sin. He's filled with life. But uh, God's providence brings him to a cross. And there he will hang his head and sleep the sleep of death. And after he sleeps the sleep of death, a Roman spear will pierce his side, create a bloody wound. And out of that side will come the substance, the blood and the water, the blood for the bride's purchase, the water for her purification. God will take that substance and he will heal uh, Christ of his wound and awaken him 
on the third day in a garden, and there he will uh, meet one who represents the bride. She is not the bride, but she represents the bride. That's Mary Magdalene. And Jesus in the garden, I remember she takes him for a gardener, and that's not a throwaway line. He's actually restored Eden, the community of God and man in fellowship. And he calls her woman, uh, which is the name Adam gave to Eve. And why are you weeping? So he's reversed the curse. It's beautiful and profoundly shows the gospel. Uh, it seems to me the, the suffering uh, that's even before the fall. That's God's eternal program. There is suffering and then there is glory, it seems, that he brings together. So the gospel partakes in some sense uh, of, of the eternal life itself. So the sleep of Adam. Now let me take the second illustration I said I was going to do is, is Daniel in the lion's den. And this is extremely elaborate. There's so many details. Uh, but as you will see, uh, this is not the way it's typically taught, but it seems to me that this is the way that, above all other ways that I've heard it taught, honors Christ. Uh, as I said, this is not, there are no stories about heroes in the Old Testament. They all fail. But Daniel is truly remarkable. So uh, what happens is the king wants to uh, set up a governance, governance of his world empire. The Persian Empire rules from India to Ethiopia, so it's a huge empire and known for developing the mail system by Pony Express. And they could have translators out. They could get word out from the capital over so large an empire uh, almost uh, roughly instantaneously, certainly by the, by the, in those days. And so the king decided he was going to put three governors over uh, all the local governors. There are 120 districts. They constituted his empire. There will be 120 local governors or satraps, and there will be three commissioners over all of them, and Daniel is one of the commissioners. But Daniel has a unique spirit in him, and the king intends to take Daniel and put him at his right hand. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? At the right hand of the great king, and that would, of course, involve the demotion of everybody else, so that provokes jealousy, uh, the jealousy of all the other uh, rulers in uh, Persia. And they conspire to bring charges against Daniel even though he's innocent. So part of that conspiracy is they know that they can only catch, capture him that has something to do with his loyalty to the Lord God. And it's Daniel's custom to pray three times a day facing Jerusalem. So they, uh, they, they beguile the king into signing an injunction that prevents anyone for 30 days from worshiping or praying to any other god or man but the king himself. And so they've caught Daniel. Daniel will not do that. He will, uh, his habit is to pray three times a day to the Lord God. And he uh, goes home, as is his custom, when he finds out the decree is uh, issued. And he doesn't close the windows. He has them open. He's praying toward Jerusalem. And the minute, the first time he kneels to pray, to the Lord God, he is invoked to death upon himself that cannot be altered. It's decreed, and nobody can change the law of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel is regarded as a dead man the first time he kneels to pray. That's day one. He's praying three times toward Jerusalem. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? There were three seasons of prayer that Jesus had on Gethsemane, which faces Jerusalem, opposite on the Mount of Olives. So the first day, uh, Daniel kneels in prayer. He prays three times because the commissioners, when they go the second day before the king to 
report that Daniel has disobeyed his decree, they mentioned that he had prayed three times the day before, so we know now that they accuse him on the second day. It's important to keep track of the days here. They're not numbered in the text, but it's very easy to reconstruct them. So they charge Daniel with having violated the king's uh, law, and the king immediately realizes their conspiracy. And he does everything he can. The great king, the most powerful man in all the world, does everything he can to try to deliver Daniel because he knows Daniel is innocent. He knows that they're the ones that are the false accusers. But there is nothing he can do. He's constrained by uh, a higher power, and so he's bound. So on the evening of the second day, he brings Daniel uh, to the court and pleads with him and says, I've done everything I can do. I can't deliver you. But your God, this is the king of Persia, says, your God, whom you serve faithfully and continually, he will deliver you. It's incredible. He knows that the only one who can deliver him is going to be uh, the God of Daniel. So they lower him into the uh, pit of ravenous lions, and uh, the, the king commands a stone to be put over. It's like a well. They, uh, uh, they roll a stone on top of the well. The king has it sealed uh, with the seals of his noblemen, so uh, nobody can dare break those seals. So think about that for a minute. Uh, Daniel is lowered into um, a subterranean pit of lions and anything under the ground in the Hebrew mind is Sheol. So he's lowered into Sheol uh, where he is expected to die and the king rolls a stone uh, very much like over a tomb over the opening to the pit and then it's sealed which is precisely the language that Matthew uses about Christ and how the Romans sealed uh, his tomb as well in the stone that was there. So the king goes home and has no entertainment. He spends the night uh, grieving and fasting for his friend. And watch this, very early on the morning of the third day. Does that sound familiar? He rushes to the uh, pit and he calls to Daniel and says, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you? And Daniel says, uh, it greets him, O king, uh, the Lord did deliver me, sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions and uh, to deliver me from death because he knew I was innocent and I've done nothing wrong against you or the kingdom. So the king has the seals broken, the stone is rolled away, Daniel is lifted up out of the pit of death, and then all of the false accusers are thrown into the lion's den and the text says the lions pounce on them and break all their bones. So uh, that means there is no rival to Daniel and so Daniel is after he's lifted up which is the language of resurrection he's lifted up out of the pit he's exalted to the right hand of the great king he has no rival and uh, then the then the, uh, his enemies are all thrown into the pit. The death that they had intended for him is the one they must justly suffer. And all their bones are, bones are broken, but we read back what that means is, but for Daniel, not one of his bones was broken. So it's not just the Passover lamb that's a type of Christ, it's Daniel too, who is delivered from death as a type of Christ, where not one of his bones would be broken. And then from that exalted place, ruling over the entire world at the right hand of the great king, clearly that's a picture of Christ 
on the throne of David in heaven, uh, the king ushers uh, and sends uh, letters using this mail system into all the world. And those letters have the same theme and theology as a Pauline epistle. He tells everybody, he commands them to worship uh, the God of Daniel, for he's the living God. He says this gospel going out to all the world. He's the one who's able to deliver from death. He's the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. And so the king of Persia commands all of his empire to worship the God of Daniel, who is the God of Abraham, who is our God as well. And, which anticipates that after Christ was resurrected, what happens? Letters will go out to all the world. Uh, the epistles of the apostles who will basically have the same message that God now commands all men to repent and to believe the gospel because he is the one who is able to deliver from death. Uh, so the message of Daniel is all about the gospel. You can see the suffering of the prophet and you can see the glory that he entered into. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and anticipating the whole career of Christ just from that one scene. But sadly, we don't preach it that way, typically, and we need to learn to preach it that way. That's, Jesus was told us again and again, this is the way that you approach the Old Testament. If you want to preach the gospel message, you make all these connections, and you show how this story is, you know, from 600 B.C., is anticipating uh, the career of Christ that will come to pass 700 years later or so. Uh, so, um, Let's do another story. I want to take one from the New Testament, a little bit different, a different kind of a story. Uh, it's a scripture, and when the gospel writer Luke writes about it, I'm talking about Zacchaeus and the tree, the Greek writers knew when they wrote, the Greek word for write, graphene means to write, but it also means to draw. And they're very much aware that words can draw pictures. And Luke clearly wants us to see a picture within the story of the account of Zacchaeus. So what is that story? Uh, what, how are we to, uh, to understand it? And it takes place in Jericho when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover where he himself will be crucified. And we remember that he will be uh, hanged upon a tree. Uh, the cross is regarded as a tree in the symbolism of the ancient East. Uh, that's used, you see that in the New Testament when Paul says, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, invoking Deuteronomy, uh, to show that Christ took our curse upon himself, or when he took the bill of particulars against us and nailed it to his tree. So uh, we don't think of the cross as a tree, but to the Oriental mind, that is the way that they uh, understood the cross to be. And of course, Jesus was crucified with two thieves, uh, one on his right and one on his left. So there were three trees there, as it were. Anyway, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where that will transpire. He has a destiny with a tree. And Zacchaeus is a tax farmer, which means he has the right under Roman authority and with the Roman army behind him to extort out of anybody whatever he can get. Um, and he pays whatever he had auctioned, these, the Roman Empire had auctioned off these rights of collecting taxes, he had bought that commission, so he's able to, uh, once he's cleared that number, everything he keeps is excess, but it's, it's extortion. And so he's an unjust man, and publicans were hated in the ancient world. And he is called an arch 
public, and the only time that word is ever used anywhere in the New Testament or anywhere in classical Greek. He is, he is a head of a whole league, uh, a guild of uh, publicans. So he's notorious and despised. And he happens to be uh, of a short stature, unusually short, some form perhaps of dwarfism, but in any case he is, uh, he is a um, small man and yet, uh, and, and he's also a very wicked and unjust man. But he hears that Jesus is passing by and he wants to see Jesus. I wonder if it's not, I don't know, maybe it's because he knew uh, Matthew or Levi in the course of his uh, uh, being an arch publican, and Matthew of course was a publican too, at the custom house in uh, Bethsaida, and he knew that uh, Christ would show mercy to publicans and harlots. Uh, those were the ones who went out to receive the baptism of John, so perhaps he was curious about Jesus, but he desperately wants to see Jesus, and so the crowd is kind of nudging him back and not permitting him to see this parade as Jesus and the disciples are going through Jericho. And all the crowd is assembled, and so he recognizes he's not going to be able to see him unless he does something extraordinary, and so he does do something extraordinary. In the ancient East, an adult male would never run. It looks, it's very undignified. It looks like you're not in complete control of things. And so he girds up his uh, robe and tears off to find, to get ahead of the crowd and to scamper up in a sycamore tree. So losing all dignity, uh, laying aside all dignity, he runs ahead of the crowd and scampers up into the tree. Now, think about this for a minute. Um, Zacchaeus will go up that tree an unrighteous man, but he will come down from the tree a righteous man. His, the nature of his unrighteousness is that he's a thief. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he too will have a destiny with a tree. And they will strip him of all dignity uh, when they bring him to that tree where he will suffer. Well, what happens is Zacchaeus goes up to the tree, and when Jesus passes by, he sees him in the tree and stops, and he looks up. The only time I think that the Bible talks about Jesus looking up, giving him enormous dignity, and he says two words to him that become words of the cross. He says, Zacchaeus, you come down. The Greek is katabethe. What that means is you come down from that tree, and Jesus will hear that on the cross. It's one of the words of the cross. The crowd and the other uh, the thieves will say, if you're the Christ, come down and save, uh, save yourself and us. And then there's another word of the cross, and that is there will be a thief who will have faith. And he will uh, ask to be remembered by Jesus, and Jesus will say to him, Today you will be with me in paradise, and paradise is understood as, the, as, a, as a banquet. So um, when Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus, he says to him, Zacchaeus, you come down, and he says, uh, for today I must have supper with you, I must lodge with you. Uh, so, uh, and Zacchaeus is a thief who is saved. He goes up an unrighteous man, he comes down a righteous man. So he has an encounter with the tree and we're all looking for a tree. That tree 
ultimately is foreshadowing the cross. And when he, when, uh, when he has supper with Jesus, it's beautiful to show his it's, it's faith. He's called, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Well, Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. That's not in question. But he's become a son of Abraham in truth because now he has the faith of Abraham. And so right there we see that uh, that's a, a Pauline point that to be born a Jew uh, is of very little advantage, if, uh, no advantage if, if, if Christ is rejected. Uh, the advantage of being born a Jew is that everything is pointing to him, and if you, if you in faith put your faith in the seed of Abraham, you are an heir of the promises of Abraham. If you reject the son of Abraham, if you reject Christ, then you cut yourself off from any inheritance. So Jesus is confirming the fact that he has Abrahamic faith because he believes in the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. The other thing is that having been pronounced justified, Zacchaeus then, it says he stood up, which I love that, it's beautiful. He's healed in his soul. There's no indication he's healed of his, his uh, bodily uh, dwarfism, but Luke tells us he stood up at that supper. This is the, I, I think, that's beautiful. That's a picture. That's the posture of resurrection, actually. And it's also showing um, the heart of how faith works. Uh, he's not doing this to earn his salvation. He's doing this because of the love of God that has been expressed to him in giving him salvation. He stands up, this formerly unjust man, and he says uh, he's going to give half of his goods to the poor, and of the other half, he's going to restore fourfold, which is what the law required, of anyone he had defrauded, which basically means that this incredibly wealthy man uh, is giving away everything because he's found the one true treasure. Uh, just a couple of chapters before, we had the account of the rich young ruler who had much property, and uh, he couldn't bring himself to dispossess himself of his property, could he? And that's because he didn't esteem what Je who Jesus really is. He calls him good teacher. And then uh, Jesus confronts him with commandments. He says, well, all these I've kept. So he has uh, too low a view of Jesus. He's merely a teacher and too high a view of himself. That is, he's kept everything from his youth. So he cannot dispossess himself of his property. And the contrast with that clearly in the context is Zacchaeus who finds in Christ uh, what the gospel really means, and so he enters into the glory of it after all of his suffering and uh, makes restitution, uh, dispossessing himself of everything, but he's found the one treasure in the field. He's found the pearl of great price. Uh, he is certainly the one uh, who has more than replaced everything he lost by seeing the gospel and what it really is. So what the gospel writers are doing, Luke in this case, is they're showing us an iconic image of some sort. They're showing we're to anticipate the tree of destiny, uh, that Christ will has a destiny within in Jerusalem. But we're also to see foreshadowings of that in the life of Zacchaeus and how uh, he very clearly sets forth the gospel in the way that he uh, heals Zacchaeus' soul and makes uh, a righteous man out of an unrighteous man. Beautiful gospel story when looked at that way.
And you can do this, you can interpret this with all the stories. Uh, uh, the common denominator, I'm convinced, in every story is somehow there's a foreshadowing of the gospel. And it's our job as preachers and teachers to find that connection and then to bring it, to present it to the people of God in a credible way and then make an appeal uh, to their hearts to encourage believers and to uh, convict those that do not yet know the Lord and hopefully uh, offer them the, the free gift of uh, God's amazing grace. So I hope that's helpful. Um, if anyone's interested, there are many, many more illustrations like that. But there are, I tried to take three passages that would be pretty familiar and show that there's a lot there uh, when you look at it through a gospel lens. And that should be our goal, to find out what is that lens that enables me to put on the spectacles, the glasses here, and I can see the text and see that the message is really what Christ said it was, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Uh, so I hope that's helpful. And uh, God bless you and all of your study and all of your uh, proclaiming the, and heralding the, the good news of the gospel. Well, another great guy that I've learned from is Pastor David Guzik. Uh, I really recently started working with Pastor David Guzik and his ministry, EnduringWord.com. Uh, and I would just highly recommend that ministry, that website. You can actually get the commentary of the entire Bible, along with audio teaching, Bible teaching, and it's just a, been a great resource for me personally. Um, and so I'm excited to be able to uh, have David share a one piece of advice video with you, but also excited for him to pour into people's lives here locally in our area in Delray Beach. The Refresh Conference is coming up November 9th and 10th, and he's going to be one of the speakers at the conference to be able to spend time with us, to pour into us, and just to point us to Jesus. And so, man, I would really uh, invite you to come on out if you're local or even if you're not. Uh, you could save the date, you could fly out, you could drive out. Uh, it's going to be here in Delray Beach, and it's just a conference to encourage and equip the local uh, community here, the servants of Jesus Christ, to pour into our church leaders and to continue to encourage people for what God has called them to do. And so, really excited how David's going to be pouring into us that weekend and going to be pouring into us right now. And so, here is his one piece of advice. You're listening to One Piece of Advice, brought to you by eeleaders.com, a ministry to encourage and equip church leaders. My name is David Guzik. I'm from Santa Barbara, California. I'm connected with Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara and also a website, EnduringWord.com, where my ministry stuff is at. If I was asked to give one piece of advice for pastors, church leaders, church planters. It would come from one specific direction. I know, and I genuinely know this, that there is much, much more to ministry than good biblical preaching and teaching. That's just one aspect, but it is an aspect that I have a great deal of interest in. And so when it comes to preaching and teaching, the, the one piece of advice that I would give is Come to the Bible with the mentality that the message is in the biblical text. That you don't have to create a message, but the message is there, and you're there as a preacher and teacher to unlock and reveal and just explain the message that's already in the biblical text. I believe it's quite a burden, an unnecessary burden, to bear 
the idea of having, I have to create a message from this text. Instead, reorient your thinking, say, the message is there, I just need to let it be exposed to bring the biblical message itself, and then apply your study skills, your illustrative skills, your personal skills to making that biblical message known. And I think it'll make you even more effective as a church leader, a minister, a Bible class leader, a pastor. And again, to put it in perspective, that's not the only thing important in great Christian ministry at all, but at least I think it's one important perspective. That's the one thing that I would recommend. Well, on the next episode of EE Leaders, I'm actually going to be interviewing Pastor David Guzik as we talk about Bible teaching and preaching. And this is this was a real treat for me. I, I never thought that I would be actually talking to him and asking him some of these questions about the Bible and how do you study and how do you prepare and, and these type of things. But I got a few hours to spend with him as I've been so blessed uh, to be able to work with him and just knowing his heart and he's such a genuine guy. Uh, it was just a sweet time of fellowship. And that's been one of the blessings that I've been able to show you is I've been in the room with a lot of different people that have been able to just ask them questions and so I wanted to get a camera audio to record it and just to pass it on to you and so that's sort of what we did uh, with this interview I just asked some questions and and talked and learned and uh, just had a really great time and I'm so glad that um, a lot of men and women have just been able to pour into me and I'm just having so much fun being able to take a little bit of what they've said or um, um, a little bit of how they bless me to just give that to you as well. And so I know that our conversation next week with um, Pastor David Guzik is going to be uh, just a great resource for you and really encourage you in all of your Bible teaching. And so I'm really looking forward to next week. And until then, may you just continue to see Jesus in all of the scripture for his glory. And may you continue to be faithful to just study and preach his word. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this Leadership Lessons podcast. You can watch all the episodes and get all the show notes at eeleaders.com. If this podcast was a blessing to you, I would love for you to share it with your friends on social media. You can find us on social media at eeleaders. You can also help us spread the word by simply writing a review on iTunes or Google Play. My hope for you with this podcast is that it would encourage you and equip you to continue to serve Jesus. Because remember, there's nothing better than doing what God has called you to do.